gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. What a busy couple days. I'm recording this late in the afternoon on Thursday because we are recording the Dispatch Podcast tomorrow morning on Friday, and that's normally where I would be recording up until fairly recently the solo remnant and uh, but tomorrow i got another crazy day on cnn yesterday and today i spoke to a bunch of nyu uh, exchange students yesterday morning had several long business calls which explaining sort of the dispatch to puts prospective hires is always sort of exhausting to me even when i'm talking to really wonderful people as i was just a few minutes ago um, just because I have to explain what we're doing along like three or four different avenues and they sound like they're in conflict with each other, you know, on the repertorial side, on the opinion side, on the business side, on the mentoring young people side, um, on the ideological side. And, um, it can, I don't know, I just get a little nervous about it and I just start, uh, rambling as I'm inclined to do now. So like, just so you know, we want some insight into how I work. I don't really like talking on the phone. I have to do it a lot these days. And um, I have this annoying to me tendency of not letting silences go unfilled. And so I um, will say, oh, and another thing. And then I get myself all worked up. Not quite like John Belushi um, on the old Saturday Night Live skits where, you know, he would always end with, and don't even get the Irish started on their mothers and then flip around and fall to the ground and rage and anger or whatever. But I do get myself kind of worked up. So I didn't really even, I just was like, all right, I, I, I need to get going and get this thing started because I got stuff I got to do. My lovely bride is finally coming home. She's been away for over a week. The house is not in total disarray or anything, but um, it needs to be in array. Where to begin? So last night was the debate. Uh, the one-on-one -on -one debate with Nikki and DeSantis, and I hated it. I hated watching it. I resented watching it. Uh, some people got, you know, criticized me last week for sounding like I was too in the tank for Haley. I think they're wrong, but I can understand it. I mean, there's a, it's a natural tendency to try to connect those kinds of dots. I like Nikki Haley personally. I don't know her super well, but I know her well. My wife has a good relationship with her. I did not like the way she did that the debate last night. I thought she um, made a terrible mistake trying to go uh, toe for toe to toe, tit for tat with DeSantis on nasty accusations. I think the accusations going both ways, when accurate, were kind of pissant and annoying and stupid thing to debate when your last chances debate before the Iowa caucuses. The sort of nickel and dime sort of issues involved. I thought were just a waste of time and nasty, but you know, and I don't mean this as necessarily a criticism of DeSantis. I think he owns this honestly. He's a pugnacious guy. He's a fighter. They actually had an argument about whether or not being, you know, conciliatory and nice after the George Floyd killing was good or not. And Noah Rothman had a piece earlier today, sort of making the point that DeSantis is a little dishonest on this because he offered nice platitudes after George Floyd was killed as well, but he dinged Nikki for 
for for saying things and he's basically retroactively trying to say hey i was a jerk back then when he wasn't but regardless i think that desantis is has made it a badge of honor and a, a part of his brand to um get up in people's grill and 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 be sort of pugnacious that's not nikki haley's brand it's not her personality and i understand the 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 theory that she has to give fight fire with fire give as good as she gets um not back down not let, her, let herself be intimidated because she's a woman or whatever i just thought it was a bad strategic thing not to sort of at, from time to time at least say let's take the high road you know i'm i'm kind of done engaging with this nonsense go to she she could have said go to desantislies.com maybe a third as many times and just made the same point and been more of a bless your heart kind of pose but I just, I found the whole thing, I mean, there are serious and interesting sub substantive differences between the two of them on a bunch of things, or at least I don't know how sincerely held the differences are. I think at this point, DeSantis is probably sincere in his opposition to much more help for Ukraine. I think his argument, that's where I think his arguments are by far the worst. They're just bad arguments and there's a lot of bad faith there. I think Nikki Haley is right, broadly speaking, on the Ukraine stuff. And her arguments have a logical coherence to them that is closer to the facts. I mean, she cuts corners too, but not like DeSantis does on that stuff. But regardless, I thought DeSantis had, had more wins than, than Nikki did, but also just playing in that, playing that game that way while Trump was over on this other channel um, having, you know, open mic night, just a bad idea. This idea that somehow you're just playing for Iowa votes on the Iowa stage is sort of silly because there are people in New Hampshire who are watching too, and then you know in 48 other states. But I just found the whole thing exhausting, and I think a lot of Americans would watch five minutes of it or ten minutes of it and say, "Why would I want either of these people to be president um, if this is the kind of bickering and sniping that they're doing?" I just thought it was bad. I did not like it, and um, and I sat there watching it alone with my animals thinking why 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 have i made these choices that i have to do this for professional reasons oh so i'm glad people liked it i got a lot of nice feedback i got some snarky feedback too but you know on the chris wallace show last week we talked about whether it was smart for biden to go quote unquote full hitler which is a line from some campaign strategist about what biden was thinking about doing and it sort of been in my head for a while, and I didn't get a chance to make the point on the set that you know this is one of these things I actually I I, I know more than the average person is the history of people using and abusing charges of fascism against conservatives, and I'd made the point that you know this is an old story in America, which doesn't necessarily mean that what Biden is doing is a wrong or b ill advised. I think it probably is ill-advised to be going full Hitler this early. And we can talk about the punditry if you want. Um, but during the commercial break, I turned to Ryan Salam and I, was, I told him about how, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but Harry Truman, you know, basically closed out his campaign in 1948 by accusing Thomas Dewey of being a fascist frontman and a stooge for a domestic Nazi movement. Truman's argument for this, which he laid out in a blistering speech in the Chicago um, stadium about a week before the election, was hot garbage. 
I mean, it was totally demagogic nonsense. The idea that Wilkie was a Nazi or a fascist is just a grotesque, horrible slander. And anyway, but I, I, anyway, I the reason it's been in my head is like Ryan was like, I didn't know that. And Ryan kind of, Ryan kind of like knows everything. So his surprise at not knowing that, um, he's like, you should have brought that up or you should write about that. And I was like, ah, eh. so then on Wednesday, I had a very narrow window, basically like two and a half hours to at most to get the G file done. So, um, I mostly just told the story of that. And then I made a really basic point, which is like really basic, which is don't cry wolf. Anyway, so just a couple points because there were some comments, some emails I got about it. Um, and first, let me just sort of make the case about why Truman's argument was so stupid. Thomas Dewey was, did I say Wilkie before? I apologize if I did. Um, uh, Dewey, Thomas Dewey, the, the Dewey beats Truman, Chicago Tribune headline guy. Dewey was like, the quintessential decent civic minded uh mainstream republican politician one of the best and most capable administrators of mid 20th century american governance three time governor of new york incredibly decent honorable dude who helped put you know domestic nazis in prison when he was a district attorney um and the idea that he was uh, front man for Nazism was outrageous slander. And then when you actually look at Truman's arguments for why he could make these charges, now it was all sorts of nonsense. I mean, a big part of it was he was trying to blame Republicans in Congress for inflation that they, and so like the argument was like, you can read it, you know, I, I link to it in the G file. We'll put it again in the show notes if, if guy can get to it. He was trying to make the case that because Republicans had, moved to repeal some price controls and price controls are bad that therefore they were in favor of inflation. And the reason they were in favor of inflation is because inflation is what the Nazis used to seize power in Germany. It's just a grotesque argument for the, you know, just on every level. And then there was some nonsense about religious big, bigotry, bigotry, you know, Dewey was not a religious bigot in any way, shape or form. It was all, sort of nonsense and demagogic and it worked you know there are arguments about why truman pulled off his upset victory in in 48 i mean people like to make fun of that dewey beats truman headline but that was the smart way to bet if you had to get the paper to bed by a certain deadline and um one of the reasons why dewey didn't fight back against that stuff which he dearly wanted to do um was all of his advisors advised them against it. They were like, sit on your lead, you're way ahead, don't rock the boat, we got this in the bag, um, don't engage with him, this desperation play. I'm quite sure that Dewey re re regretted not, that he regretted taking that advice for the rest of his life. life. There's some arguments that really had nothing to do with, I mean, the conventional history isn't that it had to do with Truman in a nationally uh, broadcast speech calling Dewey a Nazi stooge, which was put on the front pages of newspapers, but that was a, was, wasn't what closed the deal. It was stuff about um, losing Midwestern Republican farmers and the fact that, that Henry Wallace didn't take as many left-wing votes um, from Truman as people thought he would, nor did Strom Thurmond as the Dixiecrat take away. 1948 is a bonkers election. 
one of the reasons why Henry Wallace didn't take away as many left-wing votes as a third-party challenge from the left was that it was so known that Wallace, maybe not Wallace himself or debate about that, but the people around him were so compromised and infiltrated by communists that um, only the sort of the crazy left supported Wallace and most sort of mainstream progressives and liberals came home to Truman. But regardless, it's a kind of a forgotten thing. And it was a really big deal at the time. And I brought that up and I, I pointed to some other things. I mean, I've, I've been, you know, I've written about this so much or, you know, read the first 30 pages of, of liberal fascism, you know, this argumentum ad Hitlerum of, you know, calling your opponents Hitler or fascist or Nazis, very, very old in American politics. And I learned the hard way that a lot of people on the left are just kind of blind to it. They don't, they don't historically, but also like in contemporary life, uh, they just don't think it's a big deal and they don't think it's necessarily inaccurate. I'm not talking about every individual left of center person, but I'm just saying that like, like it is amazing how bad and it is bad right-wing rhetoric pings all sorts of uh, warning bells and radar things on along the left um, among decent mainstream sort of left of center, you know, institutional liberals, the slightest hint of right-wing racism or bigotry or whatever has them, you know, manning the parapets and, and denouncing the wave of hate crimes and all this kind of stuff coming out of the right. But glib Nazi allusions and rhetoric from the left at conservatives and Republicans just doesn't bother them. I mean, again, speaking as a broad generalization, they're just kind of like they, it, it's just background noise and they don't see it in the way that fish don't know they're wet kind of thing. The reason why I talk about don't cry wolf is that I think one of the things that the left, and when I say the left, I don't mean like the hard Jacobin left or, you know, Bernie Sanders left. I mean like normal people that I can, you know, like even people like Mo Alethe, who I had on earlier this week and, you know, I like a great deal. He's a good guy. Um, but like mainstream, just sort of liberals and mainstream Democrats, they, they, they just don't register much outrage for those kinds of accusations, but people on the right do, and they remember them. And like, there are a lot of people on the right who don't remember the Truman thing or don't remember that in, um, despite me constantly bringing it up, um, that an FDR's 1944 state of the union address also called the economic bill of rights speech. He said that, you know, if America returned to the normalcy of the 1920s, um, it would be surrendering to the very fascism that we were fighting abroad, which is just a grotesque smear and idiotic thing to say. And I've been thinking about this a lot because I could not believe that Robert Kagan disagreed, you know, pushed back on that. And I just think he's wrong about that. But regardless, you know, the things they said about Goldwater, the things they said about Reagan, the things they said about the contract with America, which was one of the inspirations for me to write liberal fascism in the first place was to have people talk about, you know, the contract with America as a Nazi tract, as a fascist document. You know, I know I brought it up before, but he used to talk about it all the time and speeches and stuff about, you know, I think it was Charlie Rangel who said of the contract with America, Hitler wasn't even talking about doing things like this, which is true. Hitler wasn't talking about zero-based budgeting or term-limiting committee chairs. 
And so anyway, this sort of, the, the, the thing that I think liberals, mainstream informed, intelligent liberals miss here is that there's an entire sort of infrastructure of memory about these kinds of things being said of the right. And when I say of the right, I don't mean actual crazy Bircher crackpots. I mean like normal people, like Mitt Romney, right? Who supposedly gave someone cancer. You know, like a lot of the Tea Partiers were decent, you know, riled up, but decent people. And they were routinely compared to Nazis. That tendency, like there are all these institutions, the Media Research Center, accuracy in media, accuracy in academia, a whole cottage industry of sort of media criticism and higher education criticism, all sorts of institutions and conferences. It's just the enormous, these are like the sort of mental hard drives of the right. Kind of reminds me of like Game of Thrones, the Meisters who are these, you know, these, uh, the, the wise men, the, the doctors, the historians of this, you know, Erzat's medieval society. They call themselves the, you know, like the memory of the world um, because they're the ones who keep the books. They're the ones with the giant library. There are all sorts of institutions that have been built up over the last 80 years that are premised on the idea that mainstream liberals do not give a fair shake to right, to right wingers or to conservatives or to Republicans. And so it was just, it's amazing to me that people think this is this unprecedented thing to talk about Trump as if he might be Hitler. And they, and you say, well, you know, they said that about Reagan. They said that about Goldwater. They even said that about George H.W. Bush. They certainly said that about Newt Gingrich. They said that about friggin' <laughs> Thomas Dewey. Um, and because they don't know that, they assume that it didn't happen or that it doesn't matter. And the thing is, is like that tendency to, 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 to level those kinds of arguments, right, that are deeply embedded in academia. Um, you know, I talked, who was I talking to on here? Oh, um, Paul Bloom. I was talking to him about Theodore Adorno, who was one of the leading psycholo social psychologists of the Frankfurt School, who wrote an absolute piece of garbage book called The Authoritarian Personality that was it, deeply embedded in, in elite higher education for a generation or two you know, where basically the authoritarian personality ruled out that people who supported Stalin could be authoritarians. Basically, you only scored high on the F scale, and F stood for fascism, if you were a supporter of the traditional family or conservative things. There was no negative scale for embracing left-wing things. All the threats to decency and democracy came from the right. And again, the point is, is that you don't cry, want to cry wolf because there are just layers and layers of rich intellectual and political ecosystems on the right that have built up to counter those sorts of accusations and to get people angry at those sorts of, of accusations. And you lose your credibility when you actually have someone like Donald Trump and you want to be like, okay, but this time we mean it. The, 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 the acculturation to have a knee-jerk rejection of those kinds of arguments comes in a big way from the irresponsibility of the left for the last 
you know, 70 years when it comes to this stuff from this assumption that you have um, a unique monopoly on moral and political virtue. And so therefore, the further away you get from us, the closer you get to all bad things. Uh, one of the comments that I thought about for a bit in the, in the comment section, I think, or it might have just been an email, was that these are all good points, but, you know, conservatives have for years made irresponsible charges about left-wingers being communists and Marxists and all that kind of stuff. And when I first read it, I was like, you know, that's a good point. And to a certain extent, it is a good point. Um, and I did say in the actual Jew file that, that this kind of crappy argumentation is now all over the place on the right. I mean, the number of right-wingers who are making Flight 93 arguments and do you know what time it is because the, the deep state and the corrupt institutions are imploding and we need to build on the rubble and all this garbage, never mind all the QAnon-related stuff. There's an enormous amount of fever swamp crazy rhetoric on the right. And, you know, there, I remember I went down to one of the, the first stop the steal marches after Trump lost. Um, my wife, daughter and I were just walking around and it was amazing. Just eavesdropping on people screaming about how, you know, Biden's a Maoist and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, there's all sorts of crazy stuff there. So that point I conceded, I conceded, I concede, but this gets to the asymmetry problem problem. There is no equivalent of the authoritarian personality and the authoritarian personality's influence and pervasiveness in academia from the conservative side of the spectrum it just doesn't exist. I mean, like Richard Hofstetter, who is, can be a real joy to read and was a brilliant man and a brilliant writer. He was deeply influenced by a lot of this, this Frankfurt school stuff. And his influence on higher education is massive. This idea of, you know, there's this guy, Herbert McCloskey, who, um, a political scientist in the 1950s, who was one of the earliest proponents of this idea that, you know, the, that conservatism um, was a mental defect, right? That it was, a, it was a, a kind of psychosis. There are plenty of talk radio type people who will say that liberalism is a mental disorder, and that's stupid but they don't have places of influence and power and prestige in journalism and academia um, and the arts uh, the way the other side does, right? I mean, when I think it was 1150, 1180 uh, prominent psychologists wrote an open letter to the New York Times saying that Barry Goldwater was uh, not... Uh, psychologically fit to be president and was probably insane. Like you wouldn't get like nearly 1200 prominent psychologists to do that same thing leftward. Um, because those sorts of institutions and associations are okay with being heavily politicized one way, but are designed to sort of weed out conservatives going the other way. So I get the point. I'm, I'm the both sides guy. I think there are these problems on both sides to be sure. But one of the reasons why the right has gotten so bad in the last 10 years is because they've, the, 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 they're basically doubling down and intensifying the same game that has been played at them for a very long time. And it's made the people kind of crazy. I mean, I'm still kind of fascinated by how many, DeSantis brought this up last night in the debate where, you know, so 
Nikki Haley disputes this. I don't know what the real story is, but like the story is I've heard her tell it is that Hillary Clinton spoke at a thing when she was a young, when Hillary, when, when, when Nikki was a young professional woman and it was about women getting involved in the process. And she said some cliched inspirational things. And Nikki Haley said something nice about how, she, how Hillary Clinton was one of the inspirations for her to get into a politics as a woman wasn't like she wanted to do Hillary care or any public policy, ideological stuff the same way as Hillary. It was one of these sort of like soft kind of, you know, female empowerment kind of things. I don't love that stuff, but it's also like not outrageous either. And, and, but DeSantis was like, had to sort of lean into it even more last night. And he says, I, for one, remember when, when Hillary Clinton called lots of you deplorable or something like that. Like, so first of all, Hillary Clinton said the deplorable thing probably 25, 30 years after this moment when Nikki Haley saw Hillary Clinton come speak. Um, the idea that somehow there's a transitive property that means that Nikki thinks that, you know, that, that Nikki agrees with Hillary Clinton about the deplorableness of half of Trump supporters or something. I mean, it's just... It's boob baity, but this, this sensitivity, this insecurity on big chunks of the right, you know, it lives on. I mean, how many terrible things has Trump said about, you know, Biden supporters being vermin and whatnot? It's, it, 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 it hasn't had nearly the kind of snowflake effect it's had on so many people on the right about, you know, how dare she call us deplorables. I mean, just like man up. It's like, was a really dumb thing for Hillary to say, but you know, if you're still nursing psychological wounds from this woman who lost an election, um, you know, six years ago, um, for having an off the cuff statement where she said, you know, something like half of Trump supporters are deplorables and this still gets you out of bed in the morning with rage. That's, that's your insecurity. It's weird. But this general sort of like, sense of uh, aggrievement is based in something real and it's built up over generations. It's a cautionary tale. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could 
look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so I talked to Adam White and I listened to the new AO on the the Trump immunity stuff. And as much as it pains me, I think David kind of framed things better than I did, or maybe even than Adam did on this. At some point in the, the latest advisory opinions, he just basically says this assumption that presidents can just give illegal orders is like a giant stolen base in all of this. Like the president cannot or whether he's immune from prosecution or has an expectation of delayed prosecution, pending impeachments or anything like that, the president of the United States cannot give illegal orders like assassinating your political opponent. Now, there are obviously going to be gray areas about what is really an illegal order and what, what isn't, but like the existence of gray areas does not preclude the reality of areas of black and white, right? I mean, this idea that somehow if there are hard decisions or hard questions along the spectrum, that does that means that the um, seemingly easy questions aren't easy. Um, it's just nonsense, right? This sort of gets at that slippery slope stuff I was talking about last week, like on abortion, which just comes to mind, right? It was like, I am totally open to the idea that there is a spectrum here. Um, a lot of my most ardent pro-life friends disagree, but like, I think it's a reasonable proposition, you know, the morning after pill or something like that is a more defensible claim than saying, oh, you can kill a fully delivered baby, right? I mean, there's a spectrum here. The existence of hard cases or gray areas um, does not mean there aren't really clear and obvious areas. And so like this idea that somehow the president of the United States could assassinate his political opponents and that ordering SEAL Team 6 to do it is an official act. I'm not, you know, I'm with David on this. I'm not sold that that's actually an official act. I don't know that an official act can be illegal. And I just have such, I mean, I think, I hope this was coming across a little bit when I was talking to Adam. I have so much impatience for a lot of these arguments you know, it's, it's, first of all, just on the merits, the idea that a president should be immune from criminal prosecution for murder is just stupid. It's just stupid. But what drives me crazy about all of this is 
I paid too much attention. I wrote about it so many times about the, the smuggled in BS criminal procedure, criminal law, criminal standards of, of proof of guilt, um, how they get smuggled in all the time into impeachment arguments. And then, um, until they prove inconvenient and then all of a sudden, oh, well, we all know this is just a political process. And the number of things that Trump's lawyers, Trump himself, Trump's defenders said, particularly in the second impeachment, but in both impeachments, about how presidents aren't above the law, but they're not below the law. They treated impeachment as if it was a criminal penalty when all it is is it's the, re it's the revocation of a privilege. It is a privilege to be the president of the United States. It doesn't overturn an election because that's why we have vice presidents. If they had successfully impeached and removed Donald Trump in 2019 or in 2021, Hillary Clinton would not have been made president. Mike Pence would have been. And now the arguments are is that, yes, in fact, presidents are above the law. It's just so grotesque and instrumentalist and cynical. Like we were told by a lot of people, including some people who should have known better, that you can't impeach a president in the waning days of his presidency um, because once out of office, impeachments become uh, moot. Well, okay, so now the legal theory is that if it's an official act, this is, the, this is literally, I mean, I've listened to the audio now, like, like the official theory of Trump's lawyers, this guy's sour, is that you can prosecute presidents for overtly criminal acts, even in their official capacity, but only after you successfully impeach and remove them first. So this basically means Donald Trump could go on Fifth Avenue, murder a bunch of nuns and, and first graders, and then before Congress could get its act together to impeach and remove him, he would be out of office and now he cannot be criminally prosecuted because he wasn't first impeached and removed. It is so transparently stupid. I understand that these are all extreme hypotheticals and all this kind of stuff, but one of the reasons why, and I'd have much more sympathy for the idea of not taking these extreme hypotheticals too seriously, but for the fact that this guy wants to be president again and to even entertain the conversation that, we're going to, that it would makes any sense to give this guy, this guy in particular, the kind of blanket immunity that he is asking for on his way back into office is insane. I mean, look again, I, I don't know that I'm in favor of pardoning Donald Trump. I'm much more open. Like, let's say he just gets found guilty and he gets a five to 10 year prison sentence. I don't know that I'd pardon him. And I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. I know Sarah's sort of on team pardon. I was kind of on team pardon a while back. I think the Jerry Ford thing is, is, is arguable. And the Jerry Ford thing also raises all sorts of legal things because when Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon, Nixon accepted the pardon. And part of accepting a pardon is to say that you accept the fact that you did wrong. And so like the argument from the Trump team is essentially, no, 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 no. None of that was going on there because um, both Gerald Ford and Richard Nixon were just ignorant of the fact that that Nixon could not be prosecuted. You know, and that leaves out also the thing like just murder some people and then resign. 
I mean, it just, it makes no freaking sense. It's so unbelievably stupid. But anyway, I'm, as of right now, I'm against the idea of pardoning Donald Trump. And I think it's, I think it's just as a general rule, grotesque to talk about pardoning someone before they've had a trial. But, um, and I think all the Republicans, Nikki and DeSantis, all of them have made terrible mistakes the way they talk about this. I don't want to say that Vivek Ramaswamy's made mistakes because I think a mistake means implies some sort of unintentionality, some sort of good faith error. Vivek Ramaswamy is uh, just a profoundly bad faith person. And when he does wrong, I think he does it with his eyes open. But regardless, um, I am open to the argument of commuting Trump's sentence, right? I don't know that we need a former president to, to rot in jail, though there's a real moral hazard here if you think about if you just take all the arguments we had about Hillary Clinton and her server and apply them to Donald Trump, um, they all still apply. Normal, decent, rank-and-file people who take selfies in front of nuclear subs or mishandle documents or show off to their friends, they go to jail. But these sort of masters of the universe VIP types at the top of the food chain, we're supposed to think they shouldn't go to jail for doing things just as egregious and often just as deliberate. I mean, that's, that's why you get sort of anti-elite populist rage. And I'm very sympathetic to the rage on that. I mean, the idea that, you know, if, if one of the guards who was outside the skiff where Sandy Berger was stuffing classified documents into his pants and socks, if one of the guards, instead of Sandy Berger, had stuffed documents into his pants and his socks, he would have gone to Leavenworth. But Zandy Berger got, you know, I don't know, 18 months probation and a slap on the wrist. And I don't, maybe he was disbarred. I don't know. Um, that kind of two-tier justice is grotesque. And it just seems to me that, like, going back to this thing about Roman trials for senators and officials, I think it's better to err on the side of prosecuting the people at the top than the people just sort of in the middle or at the bottom. But regardless, you know, I can see commuting Trump for the sake of, social peace, right? I mean, we did a lot of that kind of amnesty and forgiveness after the Civil War and Jimmy Carter amnestied a whole bunch of people, draft dodgers after the Vietnam War. You could see for the sake of social peace commuting uh, Trump's sentence so he's not in prison. I'm not saying he deserves it. Um, and I would exact some commitments from him um, in exchange for it. But you can, I think there's an argument there. But a flat-out pardon... I, I don't see the point. I, I, I get exhausted so quickly with people who think that these arguments are somehow serious. And that's part of what I was trying to get at with Adam is just that I don't think Trump's lawyers, and he says, uh, you know, Adam kind of suggests otherwise. I find these positions indefensible on the merits. And the only way they make any sort of sense to me is if Trump's lawyers are I don't mean, I mean, like this guy sour, because I mean, some of Trump's lawyers, I, I, I don't know anything about their characters. I think that the, that the only way it's defensible is they feel obliged to give a zealous defense. And the legal strategy is to um, run out the clock as much as possible. And so a win, the, the anticipated win isn't winning the argument at court. The anticipated win is tying up the courts long enough 
for Trump to kick the can down to have these these trials till after the election, at which point they won't be trials if he wins. Um, oh, so uh, I did the AMA this morning with um, Guy and got some good questions. I just don't feel natural doing it. I don't know what it is. I'm not sure it adds value to people the way I had hoped it would, but I'll keep doing it if people like them. Um, but um, what was I going to say? Oh, one of the questions that got asked that I didn't answer or that I, one of the questions that was submitted that I didn't, that guy didn't ask me and I didn't think to tell him to bring it up was um, someone I'll, I'll leave the name of the very famous organization that they say they are working with. Um, but they were, they said that they were being forced to take DEI training and they wanted to know what the, relationship is between doctrines or notions uh, or theories of intersectionality and Marxism? I think it's a good question. I think it's an interesting question. I wish I had time to sort of do a, a deeper dive to answer it. It's because in part it pings stuff I've been thinking about for a while that I, maybe I'll just talk about it here. Also, it's not exactly connected to the news. So I think I've said here a few times recently that um, I know he's been saying it in writing. I find the use and abuse of the term Marxist pretty annoying at this time, at this point. I think, look, I think Marx's influence, Marx's and the influence of other Marxists is enormous. It is like an oily residue over vast amounts of intellectual history and elite culture and elite analysis and academic this and scholarship that. I mean, it, undisputedly so. At the same time, a lot of stuff from left-wingers that people that avowedly sort of Marxist or Marx-adjacent left-wingers spew clearly comes from people who are just freelancing what they think Marxism means, what Marx said. Um, and similarly, a lot of people from the right are just calling anything they don't like Marxist in the same way that a lot of people on the left would call anything they don't like fascist. And so a lot of stuff that we call Marxist isn't really Marxist or to the extent it is Marxist, it actually comes less from Marx himself and more from like the Frankfurt School, which for people who don't know, I mean, we, 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 I'm guilty of name dropping them quite a bit. I loved how uh, Mark Levin in this book, and look, I, I can forgive typos. Uh, people screw up typesetting and typos. That happens all the time. But he called it the Franklin School. And then in some monologue like a year ago, he went on and on in, on live TV talking about the Franklin School. And um, I don't know if that's like where they train people to make plates at the Franklin Mint, but it's not the Frankfurt School because the Frankfurt School is something else. Anyway, the Frankfurt School is, it's basically a bunch of very left-wing, steeped in Marxism, but also steeped in Freud, um, writers who were emigres from Germany, because um, a lot of them were Jewish, or some of them were Jewish, I should say, not a lot of them were Jewish, but they were, um, uh, you know, they were the kinds of people that the Nazis didn't want to have around because they were commies. 
And they brought with them this whole mode of analysis to America and to American higher education and to elite circles that was a mixture of Freudian stuff and Marxist stuff with some, depending on who you're talking to or talking about some existential stuff, a lot of harebrained things. There was this guy, Max Horkheimer, who was convinced that the traditional father was the source of fascism. There's some great stuff. Some of these guys' writings about, you know, how the way American windows, like literally not windows, the computer thing, but like, like the way the windows work in apartment buildings were examples of deeply embedded fascism in American uh, culture because of their slamming nature that you just slam them shut. They weren't like the European windows that had the little cranks and moves on a spectrum and, and like a lot of nonsense, right? Um, Herbert, Herbert Marcuse was one of the leading guys in this whole kind of stuff. And he liked to play all these like word games where he would flip everything on its head and start talking about repressive tolerance and all of these kinds of things. This is where a lot of the manufactured consent of the Chomsky people comes from. This whole idea that deep beneath the apparent freedom and agency of Western capitalism is a more deep and pernicious authoritarian, totalitarian and oppression, that your choices are actually being made for you, um, that the capitalist superstructure is turning luxuries, uh, turning wants into needs. It's manipulating you. If you ever get a chance, I wrote a piece for National Review about uh, the movie They Live, which a lot of Frankfurt School Marxists legitimately believe is one of the greatest pieces of, of Marxist propaganda ever made. And in, in They Live, the, the, the Oscar-deprived Rowdy Roddy Piper from professional wrestling plays this everyman, discovers that the system is actually being run by these hideous kind of quasi-soulless exploitative aliens who are um, imposing conformity and, um, and capitalistic desire on humanity as, as sort of as slaves. And that's the reason why the Frankfurt School crowd loves this stuff. And so anyway, a lot of the stuff that we call Marxist, cultural Marxism, all that kind of stuff really comes from those kinds of projects. I mean, there were earlier projects, you know, uh, this guy, George Sorrell, who was one of the most influential intellectuals on both Bolshevism and, um, fascism and syndicalism, you know, had this, and syndicalism is really closely related to, um, fascism. So was this thing called corporatism, which actually as a political tradition comes out, uh, out of the Catholic church and, uh, just to get it out of my system. I've been complaining about the way the left use, uses corporatism wrong for years, years. It is not ruled by the Fortune 500 or the Fortune 50. It's not ruled by big corporations. Um, it's not ruled by big business. It's more like syndicalism, right? Where it's just this idea that the old, it was based on the, the way medieval societies were run, where at, at a local level where guild and church and different sort of stakeholder institutions would get around a table and divvy up the pie for themselves and decide how society would be run and it would close itself off from competition and, and, and innovation. Anyway, the reason I bring that up is just because Ron DeSantis last night in that debate kept using corporatism in the exact same way that Robert F. Kennedy uses it. 
And I've been giving Robert F. Kennedy Jr. crap for 15, 20 years now for not understanding what corporatism is. Where was I coming from? Oh, yeah. So like George Sorrell, he had this, this theory of uh, treating Marxism not as scientific because the realization that Marxism was not particularly scientific um, dawned on a lot of people pretty early. The Marxists still thought it was scientific socialism and had these theories about, you know, the unfolding of the scientific unfolding of history and blah, 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 blah. And they used the alleged scienciness of Marxism to deny the good faith of other people. It was a way to say, you know, we have objective truth on our side. You can't argue with us. As, as, as Bill Murray would say in Ghostbusters, back off, man, we're scientists, right? It was that kind of appeal to authority, which is a logical fallacy. Uh, but Sorrell is this guy who comes along and says, no, we should really treat it as an apocalyptic text. We should treat Marxism as prophecy, as an or organizing myth um, that will organize the math masses. And if they believe that this stuff is true, it will become self-fulfilling. And it's these kinds of sort of literary, psychological things that inform a lot of the stuff that we think are Marxism. And I'm not saying that we don't have some ideas that actually come from Marx. Obviously we do class consciousness and all that stuff, but like the number of people who are fluent in, and I'm not saying I'm super fluent in Marx. I've read a lot of Marx. Um, and I've read a lot about Marx. Um, but the idea that there are, that most of the people hurling that Marxism, a lot of people, who, a lot of the people who are hurling Marxism as an epithet or defending Marxism as a coherent philosophy aren't particularly fluent in actual Marxism. What they are fluent in is this sort of mode of argumentation and sort of analogy and literary and psychological thinking. So anyway, I went on too long about that, but it's just something I, I think I needed to put that marker down. So real Marxism is, you know, this idea about the unfolding of history. Marxism was not, in fact, Marx... Marxism, original Marxism, is not, in fact, opposed to the rise of the bourgeois and of capitalism. They think it's vital for destroying the old order of feudalism and monarchy. But they just thought that that new era of capitalist abundance and bourgeois um, rule would last a very short amount of time. And then the exploited masses would achieve class consciousness. They would throw off their shackles. They would overthrow their lords. They would national boundaries would be erased because class consciousness crosses boundaries and everything would be awesome. The economics of Marxism is really based on the surplus, uh, the theory of, uh, the labor theory of surplus value, the surplus value labor theory. I'm sorry, I'm tired. I've written about it a bunch. It's this cockamamie way of thinking about economics, which says that all of the value of a product is derived solely from the individual worker um, the inputs from the individual workers, uh, the investors, the inventors, the marketers, all these other people, they have nothing to do with it. And so um, any money that they make from this stuff is inherently exploitative of um, the, it's exploiting the surplus value that really belongs to the workers themselves. And once the workers have class consciousness, they'll own all the factories and they'll get, keep all the value for themselves. You can get into some other stuff in Marxism, but that's sort of the gist of it. Intersectionality borrows a lot of stuff from the 
other Marxism, the psychological, the Freudian, the Frankfurt School, the, 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 the sort of quasi-religious understanding of it, and also just this way of thinking about categories of people as sort of interchangeable, fungible commodities, you know, in just the same way that like, uh, you were, the, the Marxist approach assumes that you're a product of your class. Um, intersectionality assumes that you're the product of various aspects of your oppression. And this oppressive versus oppressed thing owes a lot to sort of this Marx and Marxy-ish stuff. But, you know, the great debates on the left and the last uh, from like the 1990s until, I don't know, 2015, 2010, uh, pick me a date, I'm not sure. But up until like the last decade or so, there were, there were still real arguments, it seems to me. And according to my friends in academia, there were real arguments about class versus race. And I know I've brought this up before, but like the best rebuttals to the 1619 project and all that garbage were produced by, you know, uh, committed socialists who were trying to sort of um, defend alternative narratives of American history from the sort of the singular lens of race as for understanding American history. And that was what, and, and on this, I'm with the socialists, right? Cause like, you know, at least the wobblies understood that the American revolutionary war was not fought to defend slavery and that the real American founding wasn't in 1619. Anyway, it is intersectionality is a way to introduce these other modes of analysis like race, sexual orientation, gender, and how they intersect with notions of class and whatnot. It's very closely related with like critical legal studies and, and, and all that stuff. In fact, I think the, was it Kim Crenshaw, I think is the woman who was the person who, um, coined both intersectionality and critical legal studies or critical race studies. I think I'm not sure about that, but regardless, uh, the pure Marxist thing about class has just lost. Right. I mean, like even Bernie Sanders cannot sustainably just make class based arguments anymore. And that has to do with the defeat of the class over everything people in academia. But it also has to do with the fact with the changing nature of of the political coalitions off campus. When so much of the white working class is being demonized by various, you know, influencers on the left, it's very difficult to say, oh, these guys with the. MAGA hats and the Trump flags are the oppressed class along with, you know, blacks and Hispanics who make the same amount of money. Um, the identity, the, the racially infused, gender infused identity politics stuff has simply won the argument for the most part. And the places where Marxism is still thriving in this sphere mostly are places where the class oppression stuff complements, contributes to the race and gender identity politics, oppression stuff. And what's remarkable to me is like, again, I've never thought that class analysis, that class consciousness stuff was particularly valuable. Obviously it has some explanatory value. Obviously notions of, of economic class inf influence society in, in significant and real ways. 
Um, but I've always been of the school, you know, the famous question was from the German social uh, political scientist, Werner Sombart, who asked, why is there no socialism in America? And this was like 115 years ago, something like that. And his answer, which is in many ways the answer of a lot of the mainstream American historians like Bryce and these kinds of people, is that um, we didn't have a history of feudalism here. You know, feudalism and, and you know, serfdom and all those, and the peasant class and, the, you know, all that, that really did a number on Europe because it was around for a very long time. And it seemed like capitalism was just, they were wrong, but was replacing one form of class hierarchy with another. And that's why, you know, notions of, you know, wage slavery and economic bondage all borrowed the language of medieval bondage and serfdom and all that kind of stuff. In America, we didn't have that. Um, in America, we didn't have these rigid notions of class. We cared so much less about who your parents were. You know, I talk about all the time about how the one of the most radical things the founders did was get rid of titles of nobility. America, to a certain extent, was founded by second sons, right? They were these people, because of primogeniture in Europe, they had to go make their own way in the world. And so, you know, they came to the United States with a good deal of education and, and, and advantages, don't get me wrong, advantages that accrued to them in part from class stuff in Europe. But then they came to the United States, or the New World, and um, they made their own path in the world. And culturally, you know, for all of the bad things that happened in America, not just slavery, but also the treatment of Native Americans and, you know, and for a while indentured servants and, you know, all the stuff with disease and whatnot, that cultural notion of your class, you get to determine how far you rise in the culture is a good and wonderful thing. And judging people by their own accomplishments is a good and wonderful thing. Um, and, uh, it is deeply ingrained in, in America's self-conception of itself, which is very redundant. You know, I made this point in Suicide West, I'm sure I've talked about it on here before, where the visitors from Europe would come in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, and these aristocrats, you know, these diplomats would be horrified by the fact that you couldn't tell what someone did for a living by the clothes they wore because with that part of that class baggage of feudalism that still informed early capitalism in Europe like if you were a housekeeper you wore one set you know one kind of clothing if you were a scullery maid you wore another set if you worked in a coal mine you wore another set and these were like your your societal uniforms and America didn't have that and, and certainly not in the way or at the scale that they had in Europe. And that's all great and good to my lights that it was not perfectly implemented. And that's a lot of people fell through the cracks. Those are bad things, but those cultural norms, I think are one of the things that make this country awesome, directionally awesome. You know, the ideals that we pursue in this regard are awesome. The idea that merit should be the um, the way you judge individual people is a great idea by my lights. You can get into arguments about what does merit mean and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think merit is as simplistic a concept as some people want to make it, but I certainly think it is a more legitimate concept than a lot of other people want to make it. Um, and there are arguments to be had about all that. 
And so anyway, the, 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 the class stuff is interesting and can illuminate some things. And it has, you know, and it is an obvious truism that economic power can lead to, can buttress political power or create political power. And there's no disputing that. But my only point is, is that anytime you reduce individual people's motivations to simply their membership in some abstract category, whether it's a class or a racial group or a gender group or a sexual identity group, um, you're negating their individuality. And I know I talked about that last week and it annoyed some people, but I don't care. Um, and so class, the class analysis stuff I thought could always be taken too far because you'd often get people to say, you get these arguments from the left that would boil down to the people we disagree with, we disagree with because they are acting on their class, their selfish class interests rather on the greater good. And you say, well, what about the rich people of this or richer people on the left who have the same politics of you? Is it impossible that they're acting on their class interests too? Or is it just the class interest is not as interesting or as powerful a concept as you think, because there are lots of quote unquote traitors to their class all over the place. You know, the, that sort of thinking has a, has a tendency to sort of generate a kind of laziness and noblesse oblige in, in, in various people. Anyway, uh, I'm getting really sidelined here. What I was getting at is or where I should close on this whole topic for a second, is like, I don't think you need to talk about, you know, for the person who asked the question, it sounded like if I could demonstrate to them the relationship of Marxism to intersectionality, that would help them understand why intersectionality is bad. I don't think you necessarily need to do that. I am sure you can Google what is the Marxist influential influence on intersectionality and find a zillion things. I'm sure there's some very smart things that have been written about it. I'm sure there's some very dumb things that have been written about it. I think that um, it is all kind of a con game in the sense that it is just, a, it's very much like the social justice stuff that came before. It is a way of, of trying to have intellectual constructs that justify empowering people to make decisions that they just want to make about who to hire, why to hire, um, about privilege, privileging certain voices over other voices. I think that voices that should be privileged are, you know, and you don't have to be an absolutist on this, you know, if like, I'm going to defer to someone who's held hostage by Hamas and privilege their voice as they, ex they talk about their experience and their views on this stuff more than I'm going to privilege my own because they have facts and experience on their side. But that's sort of what I'm getting at is like your individual experience can have value. The idea that you have unique and privileged experience and privileged facts because of your membership in an abstract category, that's where identity politics, intersectionality, and Marxism all have the same modes of argumentation. That, you know, and so like last week I was on the Chris Wallace show and we were talking about DEI and I want to be collegial. I did not find that the people I was arguing with on the left made particularly valuable 
persuasive arguments in their favor, at least while the cameras were recording or broadcasting. Um, it was a lot of appeals to the authority of categories and, and that kind of thing. I, I generally think that the arguments that should win are the ones that marshal actual facts and logic and reason the best and don't appeal to emotion, atmospherics. They don't ascribe a transitive property that one person's mistreatment a hundred years ago therefore renders another person's arguments more privileged than others. I just find that whole approach nonsensical or, or counterproductive. Sometimes it makes sense. It's just wrong. And that's where I think the, the, this sort of Marx-ish approach, identity politics approach, where they overlap as a mode of argumentation is they want to assert privilege and authority to certain groups because of that group's status, whether it's a class or a racial group or whatever, and because of a history of oppression, that somehow their arguments about how economics should work or how politics should work or about how voting should work should have more power and authority than the actual facts and logic and arguments and evidence that it brings to the table afford it. And I just reject all of that. But I thought it was interesting since we're talking about class and intersectionality and all this kind of stuff. It was interesting. The premise that Chris set up for, which I totally understand, I see it all over the place for about like has DEI run its course was, you know, four years after or how many years it's been since the George Floyd killing when there was all of this intense pressure for social solidarity to put up signs saying Black Lives Matter. This is the thing that DeSantis was complaining about in the debate. And I think some of his points were absolutely correct, is that you, you should, shouldn't be indicting all white people because of a cop killing a black guy, mur murdering. I mean, like, like, I think it was definitely homicide. Um, what degree of murder it was or what the actual, you know, was it manslaughter or this, that, or the other thing, you know, I think the cop who killed him was criminally at fault. I don't think you can therefore say all white people are culpable for it. That's what the arguments about white supremacy are, is that there's this transitive property and that all white people are benefiting from the misdeeds of some white people. And I don't think that logic works to condemn white people any more than I think that logic works to condemn black people. You can't tell me that you know, I don't know, Denzel Washington or Thomas Sowell or whoever is a criminal because some black guy who hijacks a car in Washington, D.C. is a criminal. It's like they didn't have anything to do with what the criminal and who, who carjacked somebody did. And, you know, it's there's no transitive property there. Same thing with my point, which I could keep on bringing up about generational stereotyping and the greatest generation deserve credit or blame for the things that you do. Not for the, you know, we very rarely hear left-handed people saying um, that they deserve pride and a sense of accomplishment for the accomplishments of other left-handed people. Um, and I get that's not the best analogy because there is, there is a, you know, a sense of black solidarity, there's a sense of Jewish solidarity. You know, these are our people, this is our community. I get all that kind of stuff. I just don't think it should be in any way put into law right? I mean, that's the whole point is that it's illiberal to put it in law. The group rights should not exist. Individual rights are all, is where all the action is. And once you get into notions of group rights, you're saying some people, some individuals 
should have the ability to do things that other individuals don't simply because of their membership in some abstract category. And that's illiberal. But where I think the class stuff is kind of interesting in all of this uh, is the way in which the people I was arguing with on, on the Chris Wallace show, or let's take it out of that, because again, I, these are CNN colleagues of mine, and I'm going to be talking with them and hanging out with them a lot, and no reason to sort of carry it on here when they can't respond. But, um, you know, Claudine Gay, she gets paid as a professor, right? I mean, she's still going to be a professor. She gets paid $800,000 a year. Um, at least that's the number I've seen reported several places. After being forced to step down because of her plagiarism as president, she's still going to get keep her tenure and be a professor making $800,000 a year. The idea of that the Claudine Gays of the world needed to be hired in greater numbers and given more prominence and all of these kinds of things because of George Floyd is really weird when you start to think about it. This was a down-on-his-luck guy with a checkered past, did not deserve to be killed. And his killing was wrong and, and, and there's no getting around that. But it is kind of amazing how, you know, to talk about this lower income checkered guy with drug issues, that his murder somehow justifies this social transformation of people who probably have, who have net worth is in the millions with PhDs and other advanced degrees kind of gives you a sense of how like some of these concepts have been weaponized in the sort of group politics, identity politics game. And I just think that like, like, you know, the way these kinds of arguments are used in the journalistic world, the way they're used in the business world. Um, like I like diversity. Let's get, let's make all these places more diverse. Let's make GE more diverse. How is that going to like prevent the next George Floyd? Like what, what is the connective tissue there? Um, the arguments about admissions to Harvard having something to do with the life choices and misfortunes of George Floyd is really weird when you think about it. And the fact that we're supposed to think about it and, and see the connection when I don't see it gives you a sense of how certain people of in the elite class in our society have figured out ways to make these arguments that um, benefit them, but don't actually benefit the George Floyds very much. Anyway, done with all that. Um, I got to walk these dogs. Hopefully I'll make more sense on the dispatch podcast tomorrow. And I will try and figure out the G file tomorrow. And um, thanks all for listening. And I will talk to you next time. Zoe, stop.